Welcome to the Unity Baptist Church Sermon Podcast. In today's episode, Senior Pastor Heath Bauer takes some time to look at what revival is. There is no doubt that God is moving in our nation. Some people are calling it revival. What does real revival look like? Today's talk is titled Bandwagons and Biblical Revival. If you're in the Ashland or Tri-State area, we would love to see you. More information on how you can connect with us at Unity will follow today's talk. Now, here's Heath. You want to get an early start on looking for it? You can open up your Bibles to First or Second Kings, rather, chapter twenty-two and twenty-three. We're going to be looking at the topic of revival this week. You say, "Aren't we in the middle of a series on the Beatitudes?" You are correct and astute. Uh, but with all that is going on this last week, with all the conversation about what's going on at Wilmore, Kentucky, people are talking about revival. But what I'm discovering is most of us don't really understand what revival is. It's a word that begs for some kind of biblical explanation, some kind of understanding. And what makes it more difficult to pin down is that there is no singular definition of revival in the Bible. In fact, in the New Testament, you're not going to find that word, which may shock some of us. Uh, In the Old Testament, we will see the term revive. If we do see it, like in Psalm 85, it will refer to uh, returning to a state of flourishing, It showed up in the context of God's people as they had been living in sin. They had departed away from God's example of what they should be doing, and therefore the hand and blessing of God had departed them, and they're asking for God to revive them, to to forgive them of their sins, and to return them to a state of flourishing, to a place of activity, to a place of life. It implies that to revive means that we want life to enter back into this body, that we have been behaving as dead ones ones who are not active, ones who are not serving, ones who are not repentant before the Lord. And so revival isn't so much that we can pin one single definition to. All we can really do to understand revival is to look in the Bible. Uh, Because apart from looking in the Bible for revival, we're dependent upon people to tell us what revival is. And if you ask people what revival is, you'll get any number of different explanations. Revival, oh yeah, we do that every year. What do you mean you do it every year? Yeah, we we invite a preacher, we open up a big tent, we have all kinds of good old-fashioned gospel music, and we we have a revival. Is that what a revival is? It's just a series of meetings. I would argue that that is not. Nothing wrong with you calling it. You're trying to create an environment where revival can take place, but just meeting for a whole week of meetings is not biblical revival. Uh, You can drive an hour east of here, can't you? And you can go into West Virginia, and there's parts there where churches are announcing, we have revival. Only their kind of revival involves getting into the boxes. You know what I'm talking about? And they're pulling out the snakes. Should we be bringing our anacondas and our pythons to church next week? I would ask you not to, by the way. Is that revival where we're drinking poison and, and handling snakes? Because if you ask some people, that's When you say revival, that's revival to them. Other people, when you say revival, they're thinking of Toronto, the the Toronto blessing or the Brownsville revival, the Pensacola outpouring, where what it essentially is is a lot of uh, manifestations of, 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 of things that they believe are sign gifts and such. And so it could involve anything from people passing out on the floor. Is that revival? 
Uh, it could involve people to, uh, you know, barking in the spirit. You think, you know, don't laugh. I mean, there actually are people who believe that that's, that's revival, when you can get on all fours and bark like a dog. Uh, there's people who will have holy laughter, where they'll have convulsions on the floor, like the Quakers and the Shakers. By the way, that's why they got called Quakers and Shakers. They would shake and quake. I think it was uh, Thomas Jefferson who said the Quakers would rule the world if they just weren't crazy. You know, that's what he said. You know, they, they, did, they made great furniture, but their theology was off. You know, are we supposed to uncontrollably laugh on the floor? There are people who say that revival involves vomiting in the spirit. Do we vomit to the glory of God? You know, so revival is something that begs definition or else we just take it at face value that if somebody says revival's happening, well, then it must be revival. Or can we look biblically at examples when God works mightily among his people, what that looks like? I would argue, friends, that that's what we're intended to do is to look at the Bible to determine what is revival or not. Now, something I will say in terms of introduction here, we're not gonna, this isn't gonna be a commentary on what's happening at Asbury. But this does provide us an opportunity to talk about revival because, I mean, when, when all the news channels, secular news channels are talking about revival, friends, it's something that we need to have a good biblical understanding of what we're talking about. And so for that, we're going to be looking in Scripture. And when we're looking at spiritual movements, I think it's important that we avoid one of two extremes. The first extreme is that whenever we hear people talking about revival and the term revival, we don't want to be an overly, uh, an overly critical people to automatically assume without having looked into things, oh, well, that can't be a revival. Yeah, I'll bet it's revival. We don't, want to be a, we don't want to be a cynical bunch. We don't want to be a critical bunch of people. You know, if we have a bunch of folks who are getting together and they're praying and they're, uh, they're worshiping and they're repenting of sins and they're surrendering to missions and they're getting the gospel out there, friends, this is something we've been praying for. And so we don't want to be a critical bunch of people who are just sitting back and, and trying to throw stones at people who are seeking out to God. And then there's a secondary extreme that we also want to avoid. We don't just want to take at face value that everything that says it's revival is revival. Okay, that's, that's not discernment. As children, we don't want to just, as children of God, we don't just want to consume anything that somebody calls spiritual food. If you've got babies at home driven by their fierce hunger, they'll put anything in their mouth, won't they? As long as it fits, it's food, right? Legos, pennies, you know, marbles, they're just, they're not discerning whether or not this has nutritional value. As adults, I mean, I bet you it's been a real long time since uh, Gary Hensley has put Legos in his mouth. Is that right, Willow? I mean, long time, yesterday maybe. We don't do that as adults, do we? We look at something, we discern its nutritional value before we consume it. So whether it's a book, preaching, revivals, whatever it may be, we discern something for its nutritional value before we consume it. If we just take at face value everything that appears to be revival is revival, so a whole bunch of people up in Toronto are getting excited, that has to be a revival. Oh man, there's a whole bunch of people flocking to Brownsville over in Pensacola or whatever. That, surely that's gotta be revival because a whole bunch of people are there and a whole bunch of people are excited. Is that revival? Maybe, maybe not. But if we're defining revival by a bunch of people gathering together and getting excited, friends, that's the very definition of bandwagon. You ever wonder where that term came from, bandwagon? There actually was a wagon with a band on it. It goes back to the days of P.T. Barnum. You guys watch The Greatest Showman? 
P.T. Barnum, he would, to generate interest in his circus, he would have a wagon with all these horses that would pull this wagon into town. It was big and beautiful, and it was, it was brightly colored. It titillated the senses. Everything was very sensory about it, and so you had them driving through town. There's all this music playing, and necessarily, what are you going to do back then? It's going to draw a crowd, and so people are going to crowd together, and, and maybe you weren't thinking about the circus before, but now that you see the, the lights and the music and the, the crisp uniforms and, you, and the swell of the music is exciting you. You're like, man, look at all these people. I want to go be a part of that. If that's what we're seeking in the spiritual world, friends, that is bandwagoning. It is just, I want to go be a part where a whole bunch of people are and where they're very excited because I want to be in a big crowd and I want to be where the excitement is. And there's nothing wrong with crowds and there's nothing wrong with excitement. But there has to be more to revival than that. And so we're going to look biblically this morning as what that looks like. Um, as we're getting started here, we don't want to be dismissive, but we do want to be discerning, don't we? We don't want to be dismissive of revival. We, don't want, we also want to be discerning. Remember, 1 John 4, 1 gives us a command. He says, beloved, do not believe every spirit. What spirit is he talking about? He's saying that behind everything holy, there is a Holy Spirit driving that, right? And behind everything that's false or untrue or unhealthy or unholy, there is a false spirit that's driving that. Like when Jesus said, get behind me, Satan, right? He's talking to, through Peter to Satan. There's a spirit that was motivating him to speak like that. And so he's saying, beloved, whenever there's a spiritual movement, there's something that purports to be from God, whether it's a book, a podcast, a TV show, a preacher, this Sunday morning sermon you need to weigh it by scripture. He says, do not believe every spirit. He says, but test the spirits to see whether or not they're from God. That as believers, we have a responsibility to take everything that says, this is what God says, or this is what God is doing, or this is a work of God. We are called to be mature, not children go, oh, that's a work from God? Yeah, oh, there's a new preacher. You ought to listen to him. Okay, here, here's a new book. It's great and exciting. It's a bestseller on New York Times bestseller list. Okay, I'll just read it. Bible wants us to be discerning. This word test here is a Greek word, dokimadzo, which doesn't mean a whole lot to you, but it means to try something. It means to test something as being genuine. It, um, if, you were, if someone were to sell you a gold watch, hey, here, I got a gold watch I want to sell you. You'd be like, okay, let me see if it's actually gold. All claims to gold must be tested, right? And if it, this also has another sense in which it means to try someone as this to put them on trial. Uh, it doesn't mean that you assume that they're guilty, but it does mean that you test their claims. This guy claims to be innocent, or they claim that this guy did something wrong. We're not just going to believe him. We're going to test it. We're going to bring witnesses. We're going to look at the evidence, and then we're going to weigh our response in trying to discern the truth. That is the term that God uses of everything that is spiritual. Believers, we are to be discerning. We don't just read something because a buddy here, even at Unity, they recommend it to you. You discern. Everything that we take in, we're discerning about it. Uh, in fact, 1 Thessalonians 5.21 says that we are to test everything, aren't we? Do not despise prophecies when somebody proclaims the word of God. Don't, don't be cynical. I don't want to listen to that. He says, do not despise prophecies, but do what with them? When someone's preaching, what do you do with it? You test everything. There's nothing that you don't test because your goal is to hold fast to what is good, what God says is good. 
And so there's nothing in our spiritual life, friends, there's no spiritual food, there's no spiritual influence that we just allow open-heartedly and say, come on in. We first discern, we test the spirits, we put it on trial, if you will, in our hearts, we weigh it against the evidence of the word of God. Is this truly a message from God? Is this a movement from God? Does this book represent good theology? Does this podcast represent solid theological heritage? We are a discerning people. The alternative is to be a child and just put that Lego in our mouth and say, I bet that's food. So God wants us to be a discerning people. So we're going to do this, we're going to look at what biblical revival looks like in 2 Kings 22 and 23. We're going to be looking at the story of a famous king in Judah, one of the few good kings in Judah, and his name was Josiah. Now something you have to know about Israel during this period of the kings, they wanted the king, God didn't want them to have a king. God wanted him to rule them as a theocracy. They wouldn't have it. They wanted to be like the rest of the world, and God says, okay. Well, all the kings of the north were bad. I mean, every last one of them was rotten to the core. The kings of the south in the kingdom of Judah, you had a few good ones, but they were mostly bad. But this is a story of one good king, Josiah. He took the throne at age eight. That's a pretty young age to get the throne. He takes the throne at age eight, and he inherited after two previous really awful kings. 57 years, Israel has been languishing in false religion. They still had religion, but it was false. It wasn't real. They were religious, they were, but they, were, they still had the temple of God, but they were unconverted in their hearts. And so here we are with Josiah. He's thrown into this mess, and then we're gonna look at what revival, uh, some aspects of revival. And the first thing I want you to see is revival doesn't require a large crowd. That may surprise you because every time we say revival, what is the first thing we think of? Big, giant crowds of people. Revival doesn't require a large crowd. It can happen within a large crowd, but it doesn't require you to be part of a large group. Revival here in this story is gonna begin with a single man and God is gonna kinda of give you an overview of this king's uh, life and his ministry here as king in verse one of chapter 22. Josiah was eight years old when he began to reign and he reigned 31 years in Jerusalem and he did what was right in the eyes of the Lord. That's not something you read often when talking about the kings. He did what was right in the eyes of the Lord, and he walked in the way of David his father. He did not turn side to the right nor to the left. He was exactly on with what God's word says. Okay, that's the overview of his life. What we're going to see here is that revival is gonna start with a singular individual. Like I said, you can have revival in big crowds, but friends, you don't need the big crowds to be revived. It can start with the heart of a single man whose heart is fully God's. And that can be your heart, and that can be my heart. When one man is revived, it's just as important to God as when entire cities are revived because the eyes of the Lord look to and fro throughout the whole earth, the Bible says, to look for that one heart that's fully his. The shepherd leaves the 99, looks for that one lost sheep. God is just concerned about a single person being revived as he has a large crowd of people. In fact, I would say this, if your revival is dependent upon being in a big crowd or dependent upon the emotions of others, then it's not true revival. If you cannot experience revival in your living room, you're not going to experience true revival just because you're around a crowd of very excited people. And, and often that's how we, we interpret revival. Are people excited? Are they really, really pumped up? 
Uh, are we emotionally redlining, like the RPMs of our worship? Are they just, ah, and we're at this really high-level redlining ecstasy experience with God, and that's revival. Oh, the Spirit of God was in this place because the people were very excited. Well, he may be, but is excitement revival? If so, then Woodstock with a whole bunch of people, you know, smoking in the mud, you know, and singing songs back in 69, that was a revival, wasn't it? You had a lot of excited people, giant crowds of people in one place. Big crowds and lots of noise and lots of emotions don't necessarily signal revival. Now, I'm not against emotion, but emotion has its place. It's a follow-through, but it doesn't begin as emotion. And if what you're seeking is an emotional experience, you're not seeking revival. You're seeking a bandwagon. You're looking for the circus. You're wanting to follow the, the, the wagon of music going down the street. You want, to feel it, you want to feel something. But feelings is not revival, but feelings can accompany a revival. In fact, I would urge you to consider the words of great preachers on past revivals. There's one guy whose name is Rodney Gypsy Smith, and he, he preached a long time ago, but he was seeing tremendous revivals taking place in his preaching ministry. And whenever you see success in the ministry, everybody wants to come alongside and go, how can I copy you? We still do it today. How can we copy this guy? So they sent a delegation to Rodney Gypsy Smith, see what is he doing so that we can copy what he's doing, experience the great response to God that he's seeing. And he sent them away with these words. He says, go home, lock yourself in a room, kneel down in the middle of the floor with a piece of chalk and draw a circle around yourself. He says, and there on your knees, he says, pray fervently and brokenly that God would start a revival within that chalk circle. Well, Rodney Gypsy Smith knew something about revival. You don't have to have a large crowd. And if your revival is dependent upon the crowd, it's not revival. Okay? We have to be willing to draw that chalk circle around us and say, God, if nobody else responds to you, if nobody else repents, if nobody else follows you, if nobody else shares the gospel, if nobody else is faithful, God, this person inside this chalk circle right here is gonna be faithful to you. And friends, that's a revival, and we can't minimize or diminish that. I had half a mind to buy a whole big box of chalk and just to hand a piece of chalk to everybody as they left the service today. But I figured we probably have better uses of our money than that, Dana. I so bad wanted to send you home with a piece of chalk just to give you something to think about. So you go home, you buy yourself a piece of chalk, all right? Draw that circle. If you're a kid, talk to your mom first where you draw that. Uh, draw that circle, though, and pray and say, God, you know, I don't need the fanfare. I don't need the lights. I don't need the crowds. I don't need to go on a pilgrimage. If you want to go to places with the big crowds, there's nothing wrong with that. You want to drive to Wilmore, Kentucky and, and just see what's going on, feel free. Though I heard they don't let you in if you're under 20, over 25 now. So uh, don't waste the trip if, if you're uh, out of college. But um, you can go to those things. There's nothing wrong with going to those things. You want to go to a big, giant Billy Graham crusade. You missed out on your opportunity. But you want to go to some big crusade type thing. Nothing wrong with that. But if it's dependent upon the experience, it might be the experience you're seeking rather than true revival. You don't need any more than just you and the Lord. Number two, revival begins with biblical preaching. Look at uh, chapter 22 in verses eight through 10. Josiah uh, was just feeling drawn by God to, he, he looks at the, the temple, he sees it in all disrepair, and he's like, wow, why is the house of God like this? And so he commissions for people to start rebuilding the house of God. And so in kind of the rubble and the broken down, dusty areas of this temple, they discover 
they discover this old book. And they're like, huh, what is this book? Wow, it's called the law of God. <sighs> and they start dusting it off and looking at it and reading it and saying, wow, I think the king might be interested in knowing about the law of God. We've discovered it again. The law of God had been so, they were still religious, mind you, but the, law, but the Bible had become so far removed from their religious expression that it was no longer a relevant part of their life. And so they discover the Bible, once again, and they bring it to him. It says in verse 8, And Hilkiah the high priest said to Shaphan, the secretary, I've found the book of the law of God in the house of the Lord. And Shaphan the secretary told the king, Hilkiah the priest has given me a book. And then it says, Shaphan read it before the king. Here we have a guy, and he's, he's like, here's something you haven't heard before. And he just starts proclaiming the words of God. And it is this proclamation, the explanation of the word of God that is going to bring about revival in the heart of King Josiah. The word of God, if you're gonna have a biblical revival, the word of God will always define the movement. The word of God will be central to every movement of God. If you go to one of these, these big old revivals up like I, like I described in Toronto and Pensacola and some of these other places, Bethel, Redding, California, and these, you just want these big events where gold dust falls from the ceiling and people are just looking for experiences. If your revival is characterized chiefly just by a bunch of exciting singing, people running up and down and flag waving and finger painting and, and running around and falling on the floor and convulsing and shaking and laughing, and it may be a grand spectacle, it may even get you excited. But friends, if the word of God is not central to that revival such that it defines the revival, it's not a biblical revival because true revival comes from the preaching of the word of God, always. It is the word of God being read and, and spoken that triggers the revival in Josiah's heart. It was Jonah's preaching, right, that began the revival in Nineveh. It was Joshua's preaching that caused Israel to listen and obey God to enter into the land. It was Nehemiah's preaching that caused Israel to forsake all their sins that caused them to go into captivity. It was Elijah's preaching that caused people to turn away from Baal worship. It was the preaching of John the Baptist that prepared the hearts of the people to receive the Messiah. It was the preaching of Peter at Pentecost that led to the day of Pentecost, that great revival where thousands of souls are added to the church that day. It was the preaching of Paul in Antioch and this great revival that took place as a response to that preaching that began this missionary movement from the church at Antioch that says, separate from me, Paul and Barnabas, to go out into all the world and to take the gospel to them. Preaching is always central to every true biblical revival, or it's not revival. It may just be a very kind, warm worship service, or it may be just an, a, a manifestation of, of people's, frankly, a lot of times emotions, or they're just looking to rouse themselves with sign gifts. The word of God is central to every biblical revival. If it does not define the movement, friends, it may just be that the circus is in town. It may just be that people are looking for the music and the pageantry and the lights and the singing and the fun and the excitement but it's not true biblical revival. Often when people talk about revivals, we talk about revivals almost like it's a virus. Have you notice that? If you watch some of the footage and, and people talking, everybody's talking about revival. And you turn on, you know, maybe some of these CBN guys or whatever, and, and they talk about revival as if it's something that you catch. People always talk about catching revival. Have you heard that? 
go up there and you need to go out there and be around the people so you can, you can catch it. And then maybe it'll spread and maybe it'll come back and it'll go other places. And we talk about revival like it's some weird mystical spiritual virus that attaches itself to us by proximity. And then maybe I can carry that virus back and then revival spreads in that way. Friends, that's not biblical revival. How does biblical revival spread? Revival is spread where the word of God is preached. Revival is spread where the word of God is preached. That's how you spread revival. It's not a virus. It's not something you catch. It's not something you get by being in proximity to excited people. Look at the, look at the other great awakenings we've had in America. The first great awakening, what happened? You had people uh, like George Whitfield. You had Jonathan Edwards. And they preached the word of God because there in the colonies, there were a lot of places that didn't have churches. There's no consistent preaching of the word of God. And all of a sudden he's like, we need itinerant preachers. And so they'd get on horseback and they'd go to all these different places that never heard the word of God like Josiah. And finally they hear the word of God and they're like, wow, that's who God is. And I'm a sinner. I need to get right with God. Biblical revival spreads where the word of God is preached. How about the second great awakening? The second great awakening was characterized by preaching. You had many, many, many different preachers that were a part of it. Uh, probably the most famous of them is Charles Finney. You know, and they'd go out and they'd be preaching and they'd be calling people to faith and repentance to the law of God. Revival spreads where the word of God is preached. That's how you spread revival. You don't catch revival. Your heart responds to the word of God. That's what biblical revival looks like. Number three, we're gonna see revival focuses on repentance. So Shaphan is reading the word of God to Josiah. Let's see how Josiah's heart responds to the word of God. It says in verse 11, when the king heard the words of the book of the law, he tore his clothes. Now, I haven't seen anybody yet this morning tearing their clothes, anybody here with, with ripped shirts and things. Uh, we don't do that so much today. Uh, but back then, if you wanted to show enormous contrition, repentance, mourning, sorrow. You would show it outwardly. And to rip your clothes is pretty significant. You and I, you know, Danny, we're like, yeah, I'll rip this t-shirt and I'll replace it, you know, with, with 10 bucks. I'll go down to TJ Maxx. I'll buy a whole outfit for under $100. No problem. We tear our clothes. It's not a big deal. Back then, we're talking possibly, for some people, months of wages for a single change of clothes. So to tear your clothes is, is an enormous outward symbol of how I feel on the inside. He feels torn. He feels destroyed. He feels broken. There's a, there's a sense of just self-abasement. The king feels awful inside. And friends, this is how, when true revival takes place, this is how you feel you don't immediately jump into, wow, I just felt the peace and the joy. You, true revival begins with agony. Like James 4, 9 says, weep and mourn and wail. Let your happiness be turned to sorrow. That's what biblical revival looks like. But that doesn't sell very well. Nobody's like, hey, come on out to our revival. We got a bunch of people getting sad before the Lord. We got a bunch of people being repentant before the Lord. A bunch of people calling out and tearing their clothes. You gotta be a part of that. It's hard to call people to that revival, but that is what revival looks like. It involves tremendous uh, self-introspection and agony. People talk about, I just want the manifest presence of God to be in this place. Jesus has manifested himself in this room. Friends, let me tell you right now, you don't want God to manifest himself here because if he did, you'd fall on the floor like a dead person. Go ahead, test what I'm saying. 
Dokimazo, everything I'm saying here. Read throughout the Bible every time God manifests himself to humans and then write down a journal of their response. What does it look like? Fear, dread, terror, a sense in which I should be dead right now because I'm in the presence of a holy one. If God is truly manifesting his presence to somebody, if he's truly revealing himself to you, friends, you're gonna be silent. There's gonna be a great sense and awareness of personal sin. Sort of like we see in Isaiah chapter six. We all know the prophet Isaiah, or at least you've heard his name. How did he respond when he was in the presence of God? I'll read it for you, Isaiah six, verse one. It says, in the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting on a throne. He was high and lifted up. And above him stood the seraphim, which are angels. And one called to another saying, and here's what we sang this morning. What were they singing? Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. And I said, what's his response? He's, this is a man who has seen God. He's heard the proclamation of truth about God. And how did he respond? Woe to me. What is woe? Woe is a pronunciation of divine judgment. When you read Revelation, God will often pronounce woes upon the earth as God is judging sin. What is Isaiah calling upon himself? Divine judgment. When, when God truly manifests himself to you, that is that you're aware of his presence, your response will mirror that of Isaiah. You're gonna have a sense of woe. You're gonna have a sense in which God justly judges me for the sins that are in my life. I deserve to be, you're calling judgment down on yourself. God, I deserve to be judged by you. You are too great. You are thrice holy. And then here's me, full of sin. That's what happens when we're in the presence of God. It says, then one of the seraphim flew to me. He touched my mouth and said, your guilt is taken away. Your sin is atoned for. Once we have a sense in which we have confessed our sin, woe to me, I'm undone, I'm lost. Then God forgives us of that sin, says you're clean. And then when he does that, look at how Isaiah responds. He says, you're clean, your sins are atoned for. And I heard the voice of the Lord saying, whom shall I send? Who will go for us? What is his response? Here am I, Lord, send me. When there's true revival, it's gonna look like this. There's gonna be a sense in which God is supreme. There's gonna be a tremendous sense of repentance and agony over sin. He says, I am a man of unclean lips. I say bad things. I slander, I gossip, I cause division, I complain, I'm, I'm an awful person. And he says, not only that, but he looks around, he says, society isn't any better than I am. I'm, a little, I'm in a land of unclean lips. Friends, when revival comes to you, this is one of the chief defining characteristics of revival. It's that you have a sense of the greatness and holiness of God. And when you're, in the, you're basking in the light of the glory of God, how do you see yourself? Wow, I'm a lot dirtier than I thought. It's sort of like when you were kids. You know, back, back when we used to play outside instead of indoors, and you'd go outside and you'd play with your buddies until nightfall, because that's what your mama expected you to do. I don't want to see you until it's dinner time. And so you go out and play, and you're playing with your buddies in the dirt, and you're catching bugs, and you're hitting baseballs, and you finally come back indoors, and you don't realize what you look like, but your mama sees it. You come back into the light of the kitchen, and your mom says, oh, heavens, <laughs> what have you been doing, son? Get yourself up to that bathtub and wash up before you come to dinner. And then you look at yourself and you're like, whoa, in the fading light, I didn't look so bad. But when you come into the bright light of the kitchen, what, how do you see yourself? 
Oh boy, I am filthy. That's what revival looks like. You're basking in the glow of the glory of God and the light shining upon your life. You become introspective. Wow, I'm a lot dirtier than I thought I was. I'm a man of unclean lips. I'm gonna tell you this, friends. The la- you wanna know the last time you experienced true heaven-sent revival? Is the last time you became hypersensitive to the sin that's in your life. The last time you experienced heaven-sent revival is when you became hypersensitive to your own sin in your own life. You're not looking at the sins of other people. It's just you and God. I don't care about what y'all do. Yes, I I see your sin, but it's between me and God. I'm I'm hyper-aware of sin, and I don't want it in my life, and I'm broken over my sin, and I say, I'm undone. If If that's your condition of your heart, friends, that's when you were in revival. God is calling you back to look like himself. And for some of us, it may be an awful long time since we had this kind of woe upon our hearts where we're examining the sin in our life going, God, woe to me, I have it coming. In the light of your glory, God, I'm filthy. Well, we see the same pattern of revival in Josiah's life. It's not just that he felt bad. Um, He he looked at himself and he says, wow, you know, I've got problems, I got issues, I'm tearing my own clothes. But then he starts seeing I'm in a land of unclean lips. And he starts becoming concerned about the spiritual condition of other people. Look at in verse 13. He says, go, inquire of the Lord for me, for all the people, for all of Judah, concerning the words of this book that have been found. He says, for great is the wrath of the Lord that is kindled against us because our fathers have not obeyed the words of this book to do according to all that is written concerning us. Anytime you have true biblical revival, one of your responses is not just gonna be personal repentance, you're gonna get a heart for other people. You're going to desire to help them draw closer to God. Unclean lips, tear my own clothes. (laughs) I live in a land of unclean lips. And he says, let's go for me to the people. And notice how active his faith becomes. Who will go for us? Here, my Lord, send me. What did Josiah do? Look at verse 24 of of chapter 23, one of the things that he did. Josiah, he says, he put away the mediums. He put away the necromancers and the household gods of the idols and all the abominations that were in the land of Judah and Jerusalem so that he might establish to make something last. I want to establish the words of the law that were written in the book that Hilkiah, the priest, found in the house of the Lord. Josiah did some very difficult things when he truly repented. When you truly have biblical revival, you're willing to to do some unusually difficult things to get right with God. Willing to throw away certain things. Distance yourself from, at times, certain unhealthy relationships. It's because God has changed your heart. If all we do is confess that we have issues, but we go home unchanged and we don't actually take action to change things about our life, we did not experience revival. Revival causes us to take action. That's what it means to repent, by the way. Repent is, the, is a Greek word, metanoeo. Okay, meta, metamorph, to change. Noeto, it talks about our, our noetic processes, is our thinking. So it's a complete shift in how we think. It's a complete change of worldview. I used to see these things as bad. Now I see that God is actually good. These things that I used to live for and defend, I see them as evil, as actually harmful for me. And, and that will, when you truly change how you believe something, it'll change how you live, won't it? I remember when I was a kid, 
I mean, every last human I know smoked. I mean, even Andy Griffith, right? Once in a while, he'd surprise you and he'd light up. Even old Ange, okay? Everybody smoked when I was a kid. That's why every, every, every place in the car, every seat in the car had access to an ashtray so somebody could be, you know, tapping out their cigarette in the ashtray. Every place had that. I remember even in Kmart. You remember Kmart? Blue light specials and pies? Kmart. I was a kid waiting for my mom to check out, and there would be next to the gumball vending machines, a cigarette vending machine right there next to the gumballs. You remember those cigarette vending machines? If I had enough change as a kid, I could walk out with a pack of camels as a child. You know, it's just because everybody did it. Everybody was, nobody really saw much wrong with it. And back in the 70s and 80s, this is what folks were doing. You know, just everybody's smoking. But then that's kind of drifted off quite a bit in our society, hasn't it? Why is that? It's because we got introduced to something called truth. <laughs> and you, I don't know who it was, if it was a cancer society or if it was the heart society or whatever society it was, they started introducing us to commercials that said, hey, by the way, if you smoke your whole life, this is what your lung looks like. And it just looks like a hunk of coal. You're thinking, I don't want that to be my lungs. You know, it changed how we thought, didn't it? Wow, I didn't know smoking actually did that. And so it, it, it actually makes my lungs black and it's gonna give me emphysema, it's gonna give me cancers and make me sick. And it changed our thinking so that smoking dropped way off for a lot of people. We got introduced to truth. It, it caused us to repent, to change our mind about how we viewed hey, this thing that I thought just made, you know, calmed me down, made me feel good, is actually destroying my lungs. So I'm gonna walk away from that. That's, that's what repentance looks like. It's a change of thinking, it's a change of worldview so that you know when you truly change your worldview when it changes how you live and how you act. That's what God has called us to. He's called us to genuine repentance and life change. If your revival experience does not result in you living a markedly different life, a more holy life, a more set-apart life for God, what you experienced was bandwagon, not revival. You experienced uh, this, this great thing was a huge flood of people and lots of excitement, but you walked away unchanged. God is not Lord simply of our moment. He is the Lord of our life. When God is Lord of the moment, you get really excited, you really get into it, and you really feel the presence of God, and you walk home and you live exactly the same way you were before. I could say the same thing here at church. Maybe you come here and you're the presence of a lot of other believers, and you hear the music, and you're just like, thank you, Lord, I'm just so, I'm just so having so much fun here worshiping. But then you get in your car and you treat your wife poorly, you go home, you, you, know, you, you treat your kids poorly, you kick the dog, you're cheating in business, and you're, just, you're not living a changed life outside of church. But you're an unloving curmudgeon who's just mean and nasty to folks, friends. That's religion, but you're not converted. Converted means it changes who you are even outside of church. Now that's a process called sanctification, we slowly become more like Jesus. But if that is not defining your life of increasing holiness outside of church, then it's bandwagon, not revival. We're just excited when we're around other excited people. But God has called us to true, genuine repentance and life change. Number four, revival is focused on God. When our hearts are truly revived, there's a sense in which God is supreme and all that he wants is all that matters. Everything that competes for my attention with God, everything which causes me to be separated from God like sin, it needs to be done away with. It's removed from my life. And that's what we see in the experience of Josiah. Look at chapter 22 now, verses four through six. It says, and the king commanded Hilkiah the high priest to bring out uh, of the temple of the Lord all the vessels made for Baal. Stop. Did you read that? What did they have in their temple? Items for Baal worship. Remember the prophets of Baal, Elijah, Mount Carmel, and 
Baal worship was happening in the temple. So these people were still religious. They're still coming to church, but they're bringing in worldliness and even false religion into the church. So he's like, we need to get this stuff out of here. He says, uh, for the Asherah, which is one of several Canaanite goddesses that they had, and for the host of heaven, he says he burned them outside Jerusalem in the fields of Kidron, carried their ashes to Bethel. And Judah and around Jerusalem, he brought the Asher from the house of the Lord. It says he burned it at the book of Kidron, beat it into dust, and cast the dust of it upon the graves of the common people. What was that? I want you to understand how difficult this was. Were there still people actively worshiping these false gods? Clearly, they were in the temple of God. And so Josiah had to do a very difficult thing. He had to choose to go against the flesh of the people to do what was right for God. And he took those things that didn't belong in the house of God, and it says he took them out and he burned it, and then he beat it into powder, and then he took that powder and he, he cast it on the graves. It says of the common people, what he's saying is this, the people that died and went before us, they're the ones who brought this garbage into our land to begin with. And in a very real sense, he burned these idols, he ground it into dust, and he scattered it on the graves of the people who brought it in as if to say, here, you can have your gods back while you're rotting in hell. That's pretty serious. That's revival. You're not, you're not passive about your repentance. You're taking everything that used to drag you into sin and you are burning it, you're pulverizing it, you're throwing the ashes back and saying, I don't want this anywhere near me. There's true repentance going on. He doesn't want anything that competes for God. There's only gonna be one God who's worshiped and it's not gonna be an idol. There's only gonna be one God who's worshiped and friends, that's the same thing with us. Granted, I doubt too many of you guys, anybody with a shrine to Baal at your house today? You have any Asherahs? Not too many? Okay. But do we still have idols of our heart, things that are more important to us than God? Hobbies, at times our career, even our families can become more important than God. Anything that we love more than God is an idol of the heart, and true revival will always root out the idols of our heart, the things that we long for more than God himself. If that does not describe our heart and our experience, we did not experience true revival. In fact, uh, whenever, uh, when we, were, we did work in China for a number of years, whenever a Chinese person would get saved, you know what the very first thing we would do? We would go to their house, and most Chinese homes, I don't know if you're familiar with the structure, there'd be a large gate fence kind of thing, and then there would be a house structure with an inner courtyard, and all the, all the rooms kind of lined this courtyard. Well, on the outside of that door, the entrance to their courtyard, to their home, there would always be, you'll see these big kind of red posters, it looks like, decorated posters with like these, these like usually some dude with a spear and that kind of thing, and they're idols. And so the first thing that a believer would do when they came to Christ in China is we would go to their home and we would have them rip down their idols. And friends, that's enormous. You're announcing to your neighbors, I no longer believe what you believe. I'm no longer trusting in this idol to protect my family. I'm trusting in the one true God and we would have them tear it down as they trust alone in Jesus. That's what repentance looks like. It's not that we add Jesus to our carnal life. It's that we destroy everything that competes for our affections to the one true God. Our revival either looks like that or it's not revival. It's where we destroy everything that competes for our affections with God. It's what happened in Acts 19. 
You had a bunch of people in Ephesus had a revival, and what did they do when they came to Jesus? It says they took all of their books that practiced witchcraft and magic, and it says they, they threw it into a fire and they burned it and destroyed it, but because they did that, it says the word of God prevailed and grew mightily amongst them. True revival causes us to distance ourselves from those things which keep us from him. And so true revival always focuses on God and it always removes everything that competes with our affection for God. And I'll say this about New Testament revival. Not only does, is the revival gonna be focused on God and not me. By the way, that's always a, sh a surefire way to tell what's a false revival. When people's testimonies, it's all about me and what I got out of it, how I feel about God and what God did, you know, just how I, how I just, just my, my, my touchy-feeliness and I feel so close and I feel deliverance. It's all about me, 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 me. Friends, true revival is all about God, God, God. And I'll, one step further, in the New Testament, as New Testament believers, a true biblical heaven-sent revival will always place Jesus Christ at the very center of that revival. Always. That's God's intention. Colossians chapter one, verse 17, 18 says, he is, he, Jesus, is before all things. Before everything, Jesus is first. In him, all things hold together. And he, Jesus, is the head of the body of the church. He, Jesus, is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead. Then in everything, he, Jesus, might be preeminent. It means chief, first. There's no competition for Jesus. Imagine an Olympic podium, you know, where they give the gold, silver, and medals, uh, silver medals to them. We're putting the gold, sil silver, and bronze medal all around Jesus' head, and there's nobody else on the podium. That's what it looks like to be preeminent. We're focusing on nothing but him. And the reason I point that out is because a lot of what modern revivals call revival, Jesus may be mentioned, but Jesus is a distant second place to focusing on what? The Holy Spirit. Now, the Holy Spirit is God, but can I, let me just tell you this. Whenever the Holy Spirit is engaging a revival in your heart, Jesus Christ will be the one that's exalted every time. Every time. Jesus said that in John chapter 16. He says, I'm gonna send the spirit of truth, and when he comes, he will guide you into all the truth. The rest of the Bible is gonna come through you guys. And it says, he will not speak on his own authority, that, that the Holy Spirit is actually in a submissive relationship to Christ, it says he doesn't speak on his own authority, but whatever he hears, he will speak and he will declare to you the things that will come and then what will he do? He, who will the Holy Spirit glorify? Himself? He will glorify me. He's gonna glorify Jesus. So whenever the Holy Spirit is truly motivating something, Jesus will be at the center of it every time. It's like a good sound man. Do you even know who's running sound today? You probably don't. Who's running sound? We don't know. You'll know if he does a bad job, if he draws attention to himself. <laughs> but if he's doing a good job, what's he gonna do? He's gonna clarify the certain people whose job it is to clear, clearly communicate truth and represent God to man. And that's what Jesus is. When the Holy Spirit motivates something, we're gonna end up glorifying Jesus Christ because that's what he did. When the Holy Spirit inspired men to write books of the Bible, who did he draw the attention to? It was to Jesus. He will testify of me. He will take what is mine, declare it to you. The Holy Spirit chose to inspire one book in the Bible, and it's a book about Jesus Christ. So when you have somebody claiming to have revival, but it's only on what the Holy Spirit is doing, the Spirit is doing, the Spirit is doing, spiritual gifts, sign gifts, Holy Spirit, filling this place, feelings, 
and Jesus is kind of getting a second or third place to the Holy Spirit, friends, it's not a biblical revival. It will be focused on, centered on the person of Jesus Christ and what he has done. That is God's intention, and Jesus himself said, that's what the Holy Spirit will do. And number five, lastly here, the revival service does not have to last long, but it will always have a long-lasting effect. The reason I talk about revival services lasting long is because, and there's nothing wrong with the long-lasting services. I don't know how long Asbury's been going on right now. 15 days, 14 days, 12 days, I don't know. It's a, it's a long time. And there's nothing wrong with that. Nothing wrong with a long service. They want to sit there and keep worshiping the Lord? Praise God. I think, I think that's a great thing. Keep on worshiping, as long as the teachers will let you get away with not going to class. You know? But for most of the secular world looking from the outside in, they feel like it's the length of time that made it a revival. Is that the case? You can have a revival that lasts a long time. You can have a revival that's a single message and it inspires revival in the hearts of people. I mean, look at, look at the example of uh, Jonah preaching to Nineveh. And by the way, Jonah didn't even want to go to Nineveh. But Jonah goes to Nineveh and he preaches and all he does, he says these words, yet 40 days and Nineveh shall be overthrown. Takes his briefcase and goes back and just waits for God to judge them. But instead, what do we see happen? It says, and the people of Nineveh believe God. They called for a fast and put sackcloth, sackcloth on them, which was a rough, rough kind of cloth. It didn't feel good. And they put it, it says, on the greatest of the least, from the king down to the guy who swept the king's steps. Everybody wore sackcloth. And if you do a little more study, it says they even put sackcloth on their animals. They're like, I don't know if God is mad at my cow, Bessie, but we're going to make sure he's not. And so, honey, go get out a big sackcloth and put it around our cows. I'm not even joking. This is exactly what they did. That's when you're repentant. You're wanting to make sure there's no possible way I'm not right with God here. But this is, this is what happened. A single sermon and the whole city turns to Jesus. Well, to God at that time. Jesus wasn't revealed. But the whole city turns to God. In the New Testament, the day of Pentecost, Peter's preaching to everybody, right? Acts chapter 2, verses 40 and 41 says, he had Peter's preaching a message, save yourselves from this crooked generation, and those who received his word were baptized and were added that day 3,000 souls. This is one of the greatest revivals ever mentioned in the Bible. But it didn't have to last a long time. And so this is not to be critical of a long time, but it also, I want you to understand, having, being entered into the Guinness Book of World Records for the world's longest worship service does not necessarily make it a revival. It may be a very good thing that's happening. I, I think, praise God, they got kids wanting to worship God around the clock for you know, two weeks. Thank Lord for that. I think it's great. But I don't want you to misunderstand and think that that's what has to happen or else we don't get revival. That maybe, y'all wanna just stay here for two weeks? Y'all just wanna camp out here for two weeks? To, I'll do it with you if you want to. I doubt you're ready to do that. But I want you to understand, you can have revival without having to have a long service. That is not, these external characteristics are not what make revival, revival. But revival will always have a long-lasting effect. So for that, we're gonna look at, uh, once again, did the revival that Josiah experienced, did it have a long-lasting effect in his life? Well, let's just look at a few things. Chapter 23, the whole chapter is about all the long-lasting effects of revival that took place uh, amongst them. They made a covenant with the Lord to obey his word. It says all the people joined him. They went to work. They destroyed the vessels of Baal. They destroyed the false gods, uh, the Asherah. We talked about what they did with Asherah. That didn't end well for her. They got rid of temple prostitution. Didn't know that was a thing. I'm sure church attendance kind of dipped for some folks after they got rid of temple prostitution, but that, that disappeared. It says the altars to Molech were destroyed. Molech was the god. 
that if you wanted to sacrifice your child to give yourself greater prosperity, you could do it there. It didn't matter if your child was a little bit older, you'd make them walk and literally pass through the fire. And if you had a baby that you just wanted to get rid of to make yourself more prosperous, you'd put it on the bronze altar of this thing and they would beat the drums loudly to cover up the wails of the mothers. What did they do with the altars of Molech when the people got revived? It was gone. When we become revived with God, we become concerned about the spiritual and even physical health of other people. These people became concerned that we're not going to kill our babies anymore. And so, friends, I'm going to say this. If you are telling me about your revival, but you're going to go home and you're going to promote the murdering of children and abortion, don't talk to me about revival. Because revival will always get to your heart. It'll cause you to be concerned with God. All true revival is going to be a return to the two great commands. To love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your soul, all your mind, all your strength, and you're going to love your neighbor as yourself, including the unborn. So don't talk to me about revival if you're still all for killing babies so that it promotes somebody in a more prosperous way. They destroyed the altars of Molech. But finally, I want you to see this, and then we're, 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 we're actually done. Verse 21 to 23, it says, the king commanded all his people, keep the Passover of the Lord your God. So he got rid of all the junk that didn't belong in church, and now he's making sure that their, their temple is doing the things that they're supposed to be doing that glorify God, including Passover observation. He says, for no such Passover has been kept since the days of the judges who judged Israel during all the days of the kings of Israel and the kings of Judah. But it says, in the 18th year of King Josiah, the Passover was kept to the Lord in Jerusalem. 18th year of Josiah. You know what that means? Josiah was 26 years old. If he was here today in church, he'd be sitting right here amongst y'all. I think that's just a reminder. Don't let anyone look down on you because of your youth, but be an example to the believers. At 26 years old, this man was leading a national revival. And he did some difficult things that were gonna make some people angry. We've been worshiping these idols like this for the past 60 years. Who are you to take out this idol that belongs to me? Glad that doesn't happen anymore in churches today where a man of God comes in and he starts saying, you know what? There's some things that we have in church that are idols to us and that needs to be removed so we can return to the worship of the one true God. How dare you? We've been doing it this way for 75 years. Who are you to come in? Josiah and tell us this doesn't belong and this does. It's because Josiah was standing on the side of the word of God. And that's where we need to be. Now, if we come into a place of closing here when it comes to revival, how do we pray about this? How do we pray for the kids over in Asbury doing their thing? I think you pray that God will protect their hearts, that he will draw them into true and genuine repentance and worship of him. If there's true revival, by the way, going on in Asbury, we're gonna see people returning to the institutions God created because that's what happened here. They returned to the temple. You're gonna see these kids and they're gonna be going to church. They're not just gonna attend, they're gonna join. They're not gonna join, they're gonna serve. They're gonna give, they're gonna be sharing the gospel because that's what true revival does. It returns to the institutions God created. You're not gonna to go to revival and say, I'm spiritual but not religious. I'm spiritual but I don't do organized religion. I don't do church. But Matthew 16, Jesus says, this is my church and I will build it. You don't get to say, I love the Father, but I hate his bride. This is the bride of Christ, and God built it. And so be praying for them that God will get them into good churches to disciple them 
that he will use them in a mighty way to spread the, the proclamation of the truth of Jesus Christ and God's word to all surrounding areas. And then, wor- and then worry more about ourselves. Can we do that? People always ask, is the revival at Asbury real? Friends, I think it's real for a number of people, but I'm far less concerned with determining whether or not what Asbury is doing is real, and far more concerned is, are you seeking revival yourself? The Word of God is not something that we're using to measure other people simply. The Word of God is something we receive in our own hearts. Are they being revived? I pray they are. I think many are. But are you? Are you ready, my friend, child, son, or daughter of God to get your chalk and draw a circle around yourself and to pray for God to revive your heart? Let's not worry so much about what God is doing in other places as much as he is. What is he doing in your heart here today? You could experience revival this moment, this morning. Let's pray for that, shall we? God, we thank you this morning that as we study your word, we see that you have called us into relationship with you. I pray that through the preaching of the word, God, we might be more aware of your holiness, your greatness, that we might also be aware of our own sinfulness. That you would cause maybe not us to tear our clothes so much, but to tear our hearts. That you would cause our hearts to agonize over the sins that we ourselves are guilty of. Lord, help us to see you as magnified, that you are big to us, not just big while we're at church, but help, I pray that you will be big to us while we're away from church, while we're in our homes, while we're at our places of work, during our hobbies, that God, you will be big to us at all times. That you will be Lord of our life and not simply Lord of our moment. Draw us near to you in a spirit of of prayer and humility this morning, we ask in Christ. Amen. From all of us here at Unity, we would like to thank you for spending time with us today. If you would like to know how to surrender your life to Christ, or if you'd like to share a response, visit us at www.unitybaptistashland.com. We would love the opportunity to help you in your next steps. You can also connect with us on Facebook at UBC Ashland. If you like what we're doing, don't forget to like and subscribe and share our podcast. Until next time, may we do as Psalm 119.10 says, With my whole heart I seek you. Let me not wander from your commandments.